You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And by PolarTech, celebrating 40 years at the original fleece, outfitting climbers and other adventurers around the world. And Gnarly Nutrition, Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. Our guest is the alpinist, skier, and big wall climber Chantelle Astorga. An avalanche forecaster based in the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho, Chantelle has been guiding and climbing on Denali for more than a decade. And in the last six years, she has completed a trio of groundbreaking climbs on North America's highest peak. In 2015, Chantel and Jewel Lund climbed the Denali Diamond, making the first all-female ascent of the mountain's steep southwest face. Three years later, she and Ann Gilbert Chase completed the Slovak Direct on the south face, perhaps Denali's most difficult route. And this year, on June 14th, at age 35, she realized a long-held dream a solo ascent of the classic Cassine Ridge on Denali, climbing 8,000 vertical feet from the Bergschrund to the summit in 14 hours and 39 minutes. As you'll hear, Chantelle applied all of her experience on Denali to planning and executing the Cassine climb, including a complex approach down Denali's Seattle ramp to reach the base, possibly the first time this route has been skied. She then carried her skis up and over to descend the upper west buttress and return to her high camp. It took a while to find some time in Chantel's busy schedule for an interview, but we think it was well worth the wait. Speaking with the AHA's Lauren Miller, she describes her tactics and decision-making for the Cassine Ridge in great depth. It's a peek inside the mind of a Denali master. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Chantel. Thanks so much for coming on The Cutting Edge today. I'm super excited to finally get to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me here. All right. So we are here to talk about a climb you did back in June, uh, which was a solo ascent of the Cassine Ridge on Denali, which just happened to also be the first female solo of the Cassine. And I kind of wanted to start by just saying that, well, of course, this is a pretty impressive ascent, which is why we're here to talk about it. It really is no surprise, I think, to most people who follow alpine climbing, because you're definitely not a stranger to the Alaska range. And so I was wondering if you could give us just a brief overview of the time you spent in the range. I know that you've made at least a dozen trips up there and kind of how that factored into picking this route for this season. Sure. Yeah. Um yeah, I've, I'm not exactly sure how many trips I've done up there, but it sort of started when I was 19. I went up to Denali and skied Denali. Um, and then after that, I uh, spent a few years guiding 
up on the west buttress of Denali as well. I also have gone to other locations in the range, um, places like the Pika and the Tokositna Glacier and whatnot. But um, I do really enjoy uh, 6,000 meter peaks and I like climbing technical routes on 6,000 meter peaks. And it's just super convenient that Denali is kind of our local high peak. And uh, yeah, I've just, I have a, I just have grown to love that peak in so many ways. And uh, so, yeah, I, I have spent a fair amount of time out there. Uh, that's super cool. And so a lot of people have described the Cassine as perhaps the most iconic alpine climb in North America. I'm sure that most people listening to this have heard of it and are familiar with it. But I'm wondering if you can explain the route a little bit just in terms of where it is on the mountain and what type of terrain you generally see up there. Okay, yeah. So the Cassine is definitely an iconic route. It's uh, it's just quite beautiful and striking. And I would say it's probably the most striking line on Denali itself. And uh, it splits the south face and the southwest face of Denali. Um, it is approximately 12,000 feet is the base of the route climbing up to uh, just over 20,000 feet at 20,310. So um, it's quite long. Uh, fall line route with uh, both pure ice climbing and then uh, mixed rock and snow uh, technicalities above that. So, and then it finishes with just a few thousand feet of uh, snow hiking up high. Right. And had you climbed it before? Uh, no, I've never climbed the actual Cassine. I have climbed two different routes, one on the south face, the Slovak Direct, and uh, one on the southwest face, the Denali Diamond. And both of those routes do intersect with the Cassine Ridge, but they do uh, at approximately 17,005 to 18,000 feet. Um, so I have walked the upper part of the Cassine Ridge a couple times, but I have never climbed any of the technical difficulties that you experience between uh, 12,000 feet and about 16,300 feet. And so I'd read that you'd always thought about soloing the Cassine, and I'm wondering if the reason that you hadn't climbed it so far is because you kind of had it in your head as saving it for a potential solo someday. Uh, yeah, certainly not initially. That wasn't uh, my thought process. I was really drawn to the Denali Diamond as sort of the first technical route that I wanted to climb up on Denali. And um, Jewel Lund and myself went to Denali in 2015 and climbed the Denali Diamond. Um, and then afterwards, I connected with Anne Gilbert Chase, and we climbed the Slovak Direct on the south face. Uh, first year, we attempted it, got about 3,000 feet up it, and had to retreat due to a storm, and then went back and completed it in 2018. Um, but prior to meeting Anne Gilbert or starting to develop our climbing partnership, I had decided that the Cassine was something I really did want to solo. And uh, I started scheming that like after we climbed the Denali Diamond in 2015. And in 2016, I went back to Denali uh, to try to solo the Cassine. And, you know, at this point, I had kind of built up my strategy, how I wanted to go about it um, in the same way that I ended up doing it this year with uh, a ski approach and climbing in my ski boots with my skis and kind of utilizing all these skills that I had built over the years. But in 2016, uh, the weather was quite terrible when I was there and, um, I eventually got over it and bailed. Um, and in hindsight, I mean, I think ultimately I, I might not have been mentally prepared for it. 
um, in the way that I was going into it this year. So you mentioned that even way back then, you'd known that you wanted to use skis. And I would love to dive into that a little bit because it's different than a lot of the other speed solos and just solos of the casino that we've seen a lot recently. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your ski background and how you factored that in to planning for this ascent. And then maybe after that, we can get in a little bit of the decision making that you need to use <laughs> that's different than when you're not going with skis. Yeah, skiing's um, just as big of a part of my life as climbing, alpine climbing. Um, I love it just so much, and if not, like, more than climbing in a sense. Um, I mean, I love climbing too, obviously, but, uh, you know, I originally started moving through the mountains on skis and um, ski mountaineering and going on expeditions uh, for skiing, mountaineering specifically, and um Ultimately, I did want to get into climbing and alpine climbing, um, but it's kind of just always been something that I've really enjoyed, and it just made sense to me with the Cassine Ridge specifically that the approach to it is quite complex. Uh, no matter what route you take, you're exposed to glaciated crevasses and or overhead hazards, and so that was kind of like, you know, what I hemmed and hawed over the most was the logistics of the approach. And I, I knew it was going to be with skis and that was going to be my safest bet for getting to the base. But it also just like for kind of the style for me, like made sense and, you know, like got me really excited by the idea of being able to ski down to the base, climb in a lightweight setup with lightweight skis and then descend back off the top. I mean, it really is sort of a perfect route for that. And um, that's kind of where it came from and uh, something that did work out uh, perfectly as well. Yeah. And so I'd like to get into the specific gear that you used and how it worked or didn't work. You said it ended up all working out really well for you, but what's it like? You have to spend quite a bit of time climbing in your ski boots then, right? So can you talk about how that works and finding ski boots that are also warm enough for the upper mountain? It seems like that could be a challenge. Sure. Yeah. I've, uh, I guess over the last like five years, I've, um, tried various types of boots trying to figure out like what actually would work best for me. Um, I kind of have a weird shaped foot. So I, I ended up sticking with an atomic boot, which, uh, is a schema boot. It's called the atomic, uh, backland ultimate. And it's a super lightweight boot that really doesn't have that great a ski performance, but, um, it's got a really good like walk mode on it. And, um, I figured it would climb quite well and, you know, ski decently. Those things come with super thin liners. So I got a thick liner for it in hopes that that would help keep my feet warm. Um, but of course that takes up the space. It's kind of just a fine balance because you're trying to get something that will perform well when you're skiing and, um, hold your foot in place. I don't really like wearing sloppy ski boots. I like them to be snug so that they perform better. And then also something that your feet aren't going to get too cold in. So I worked with a shop down in Salt Lake called uh, the Sport Loft. Um, this guy, Jeremy, who owns it, um, he did a bunch of boot liner work for me and cut out a bunch of spots to give my feet plenty of space, but then filled those holes back in with wool, uh, which in turn would keep the warmth for him. So yeah, going into this trip, you know, I've skied in the Sawtooth a lot with that setup, which is quite a cold place, but certainly not as cold as the higher elevations of the Alaska range. Going into it, I knew that there was a chance that uh, my feet could get too cold. Um, and really, the trip was 
and experimentation to see if it would work. Um, keeping my fingers crossed that it would as well. I also had uh, those 40 below boot covers that people wear at higher altitudes, but I really didn't want to have to wear those. <clears throat> that was kind of worst case scenario if my feet didn't stay warm during acclimatization. And I would say that during acclimatization, um, I was right on the verge of uh, having my feet be too cold, uh, which was a little bit worrisome for me, but it was quite a cold year up there and quite windy. Uh, but going into the climb, I had a decently uh, mild day, what mild for that area. It was about 10 degrees warmer than it had been with uh, the lows around minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit instead of minus 20. So I kind of just took my chances with it, knowing that there was a risk <laughs> to it as well. But uh, it did. It worked out for me. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you. And I, it seems like in the world of alpine climbing, these trade-offs between gear is a huge part of the game, right? Choosing to take something that might up your safety margins, but then you have this extra weight. And we think about that with our clothes and our sleeping bags and all that sort of stuff. And so I kind of want to talk about the rest of your kit and these other trade-offs that you maybe had to make. Did you bring a bivy kit or anything like that? Or did you know that you were committing to this light and fast mission? Yeah, I did take a bivy kit. Basically, it was a bivy kit that would allow me to rest at the base of the route um, at approximately 12,000 feet. Um, it wasn't anything that was going to keep me warm, probably above 13, maybe 14,000 feet. So I never did anticipate sleeping above that. This bivy kit that I put together uh, weighed approximately two and a half pounds, uh, maybe a little bit less. And I kind of just took the through, through, pack, through hiker approach. With that, I took basically a very lightweight quilt and then just a little one-person backpacking tent uh, and a very, very small pad. Um, the idea with that was that I'd get down to the base of the route in the afternoon. The sun is quite intense down there until like 8, 9 p.m. So I was going to rest, uh, get out of the sun, and then I figured I'd be too cold by about midnight. And so I'd start climbing them, but I actually stayed pretty warm and slept straight through till about four 30 in the morning. So yeah, this kit, definitely there was no intention of sleeping up high. And I think worst case scenario, had I needed to hunker down, it would have been pretty miserable. Let's see, what else did I carry? I, I carried a stove, a small stove. Uh, I had a really lightweight ski setup. I took basically children's length skis like 149 centimeter length skis that were 78 millimeters underfoot so they they were an atomic backland ultralight uh with plume 150 bindings um they actually skied quite well like you would have obviously not wanted to go deep powder skiing or like certainly open mm -hmm. up your turns but um keeping your turns pretty tight and in control uh, i was really impressed with how the whole ski setup worked for me um, I took ski poles as well. And then, uh, yeah, just basics, food, uh, two liters of water and, um, some clothes, gloves. Um, and as far as climbing equipment goes, I didn't take much in that front. I took about a, I can't remember now it was a 25 meter or 30 meter, um, six millimeter tagline, uh, the pure line that Petzl makes and two ice screws. And that was really just there were a couple question marks once I decided to descend the Seattle ramp. Um, sometimes the Seattle ramp, you have to rappel over the burst run. 
Um, so that was a concern. And then, of course, uh, I just wanted a way to retreat off the casino if I had to, knowing that I'd have to down climb a lot and do shorter repels over things if that had been the case. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about that ski setup a little bit more because I find that super interesting. And I'm wondering if you'd practiced skiing with those before. Like, did you know how they were going to perform before you went or was this really unexperimented gear? Um, back in 2016, I had a when I first went to Denali for, to attempt the same goal, um, I had a ski setup that was Hagen Cirrus skis and they had a really wide tip. And then about the same 78 millimeters underfoot, 75 millimeters. And those things actually skied really well. Um, of course, since these are kind of a schemo style ski, their life is not super long. So, um, And I'd never been able to replace those skis with something that I thought skied quite as well for being such a small ski. And so I've tried multiple skis over the years. And then this spring... Um, I was in Salt Lake visiting family and I just went into the schemo shop and saw these little shorties and some friends that I live and work around uh, kind of had encouraged maybe a shorter ski than what I had been using, like a 158. So I, yeah, I went in, I looked at them and I was like, yeah, I'll get these and give them a shot. And uh, I did ski them in the Sawtooth, uh, Sawtooth Mountains here in Idaho where I live for a couple weeks um, before I left on the trip. So I, yeah, I had, I had some idea of how they would ski, but, um, yeah, I kind of loved them from the very first time I put them on my feet. That's awesome. And I just wanted to touch on the rope. So you brought a rope, but really just for potential descent options. You didn't do any self-belaying or have any plan to use that on the ascent. Yeah, correct. Um, Going into this idea of soloing the casino, I really wanted it to um, just be a really, a really light, you know, quicker ascent. And for me, that meant not belaying myself on pitches. I, I kind of knew going into it this year that I would just be capable of climbing it or getting myself through whatever um, I encountered. And, um, you know, I kind of, Colin Haley is, uh, has spent a fair amount of time on that route. Um, and then also thought through his logistical approach to his speed solo of the route. And, um, I've bumped ideas back and forth off of him for the past handful of years. And, you know, he kind of just was also the conclusion that you want to keep it as light. I mean, obviously the the heavier you pack your pack, the slower you're going to go. It's just inevitable. So, um, it was really just more about, kind of a, more of an athletic, adventurous feat. I was basically just hopeful that like nothing was going to be too, too tricky, you know? And sure enough, I mean, it was, it was totally fine. It was just fun for me. Yeah. I'm wondering if there were any surprises about the route. You'd never been on most of it before. And so how did it compare in reality to what you thought it was going to be like? Um, I did think so. The very bottom of the route um, up for probably approximately a thousand feet is um, something called the Japanese Kuar. It's just ice climbing. Um, I think in the book, which obviously mountains change uh, over time, it's hard to give something a specific grade. Um, but I think it's Alpine Ice 4, probably, which I knew as well within my abilities. I thought that that the there was a like one section in that that I thought was a little bit trickier and I kind of got myself like pinned into this. I don't know that there's like over 
the ice basically kind of goes up this funnel and then there's a rock wall right there. And the rock wall in this one specific section I'm talking about kind of like juts out behind you. And, um, it was sort of the first wake up call that I had that I had skis on my back. Um, cause I kind of got into mm. this little choked section and I like looked up and my skis hit the rock behind me and I kind of like, you know, I was fine, but I lost my balance a little bit and had to sort of reset and figure out how to get myself out of that little section. But yeah, um, it's, you know, s- short, steeper sections of ice, um, which was very straightforward. I knew that ahead of time that there was going to be some rock pitches that climbing with skis would be potentially uh, challenging, but I didn't find that to be the case at all. Um, And then I kind of anticipated that the sort of quote unquote technical difficulties or the more technical part of the route would be done with once you got off of uh, a section called the Cassine Ledge. But I found the climbing in the first and second rock band, which although they were short little cruxy spots. I found some of that stuff to be more difficult than anything I experienced lower on the route. But yeah, I mean, overall it was all, it's all, it was all very manageable for me. I think, uh, another thing I'd note in preparation for this was, um, sort of looking for a window where I knew other people were going to go up before and put in a boot track. Um, obviously if you're breaking trail, things slow down and I'm aware of that and that that's a potential in the mountains. But if, if you know that there's a boot track in it, you have a better chance of uh, being able to move quicker and sort of count, count on that being there in places. So um, a few friends, um, Sam Hennessy, Michael Gardner and Fabi had been up there maybe three or four days beforehand and they put an immense amount of work um, on the hanging glacier between about 13 and 14,000 feet breaking waist deep trail, which I was super appreciative for because uh, had I done that, it would have certainly um, used a lot of my energy and uh, slowed things down a bit. So I owe him for that. And above that, the wind had blown and filled the tracks back in, but breaking trail was never too difficult. It was a, uh, just like boot top trail breaking for a lot of the upper mountain and through the first and second rock bands. Great. And so I'd kind of like to jump back to the beginning a bit and talk about the approach, because I know that that's one of the main things that you had to consider here. And I'd like for you to touch on how using skis is part of the safety decision making there as well, right? Not just that you're a skier who loves skiing, but there's like a reason to use those approaching this terrain specifically when you're out there by yourself? Sure. Yeah. So there's, there's about three and a half options, uh, to get to the base of the casino. And historically the main option's been, um, a glaciated fork called the Northeast Fork of the Cahiltna, also known as, uh, Death Valley. Um, I've never walked up that before and I never want to walk up it in my life. It's kind of a terrifying looking valley with just overhead hazards everywhere. Um, and not to mention heavy, heavily glaciated. So that wasn't even on my radar. Um, my main choice was to, so those of you that are familiar, the West buttress, uh, of Denali, which is sort of the acclimatization route and also, uh, the most popular route on the mountain. Um, that's where I acclimated at. And, um, in order to get from the 14,000 foot camp on Denali over to the Southwest basin and, or where the casino is, 
you can either go up the Death Valley that I was talking about, descend back down low, go up that, or you can ascend from 14 up to 16,500 feet on the West Rib. And then you could descend the West Rib all the way down to the Northeast Fork and walk about a mile up the Glaciated Valley to the Cassine. Um, the other option would be to do the same, ascend up to the West Rib, descend a little ways down the West Rib, and then take a cutoff to the Seattle ramp or the Wickwire ramp. Um, and that takes you right to the base of the Southwest Face and the Cassine Ridge. Um, that's more of a, it's an ice fall. And uh, it's, there's quite a lot of crevasses on it, but it's more just the complexity of it that makes it a bit intimidating. And that has overhead hazards as well. And then the last option is to walk up the East Fork of the Kahiltna, uh, which takes you to the base of the south face of Denali. And you can go up over Kahiltna Notch to get to the base of the Cassine, which is what Colin Haley did. Um, I was sort of interested in that approach because I've walked up the East Fork a couple times, but it's a heavily crevassed area. And um, when Gilbert and I had bailed off the Slovak in 2017, two of our friends, Tom and Houston, um, they were on the bottom of the route and they bailed off with us. And the four of us walked out that valley and uh, Tom was on the front of the rope and he must have fallen into a hundred crevasses on the way out. Um, it was the afternoon, it was warm, so it wasn't uh, a great time to travel on the glaciers. But, um, you know, we had a rope team of four of us, so we opted to do it that day. But um, when Colin approached it, he was following an old track of Gilbert's and I's, which gave him, you know, I think some comfort. Um, I wasn't sure that I would have that. And he also talked me out of that idea. So um, saying that it was as close to at his limits for glacial solo glacial travel. And I would say he's got a higher risk tolerance for that than I do. Um, traveling with skis on the glacier distributes your weight differently, right? So if you're, if you're boot packing, you risk punching into a hole. Um, obviously if you're alone, that's a little bit terrifying. And if you're wearing skis, as I'm sure most of you are familiar, it just distributes your weight better. So I thought that that was safer. It just thought it was also more fun. Um, and so in the end, my main thought for the approach that I've, that I came to was that I was going to ski down the West rib, which is actually quite long. And it wasn't a guarantee I'd be able to keep my skis on because, uh, chicken shit kuar or chicken head kuar, I can't remember what it's called, uh, can oftentimes be ice. And so I eventually opted for if there was a boot pack down the Seattle ramp, that's the route I was going to take. Um, and sure enough, a couple friends were going to climb the Denali Diamond. They put a boot pack in that morning or night before. And um, I think one last thing I'd touch on is that, you know, usually it's like nicest to travel at night as far as safety goes, um, just because everything's frozen. Um, that doesn't really work so well with the ski descent approach, just because a lot of the stuff is south, southeast facing. And so it does get a breakable crust on it. Um, so I kind of, I kind of hemmed and hawed with the decision of, do I go at night and risk having to take my skis off because the conditions are too hard uh, for skiing and are too dangerous? Um, or do I wait till it warms up a little bit um, where I might have better ski conditions, but there's a greater risk of things like overhead hazards or falling into crevasses being a problem. And eventually I just came to the idea that uh, waiting till to leave 14 camp to ascend up to the West Rib and then descend the West Rib and the Seattle ramp, I decided to do that at like 11 o'clock in the morning. 
Um, so I wouldn't be necessarily descending at the hottest part of the day, but close to, and, um, that worked out really well for me just because, uh, the surface had warmed up. I actually had really phenomenal ski conditions all the way down the rib into the Seattle ramp. Um, the Seattle ramp was socked in, in, um, a pretty thick cloud. So I didn't have great visibility. Um, but I did have decently good ski conditions which, yeah, there were parts of that that were quite intimidating for me just because I knew what was above me. Um, I couldn't really see what I was, what I had coming at me until I was like 10 to 15 feet away from crevasses and stuff. But yeah, I mean, pretty easy to just straight line over a crevasse and then start making some turns again. (laughs) Yeah, just as, just as easy as that. No, I mean, I was scared. I was scared on the descent. I won't, I won't lie. Yeah. I was quite relieved to be done with it. Yeah, I'd read that you'd come fairly close to your comfort zone on the descent. And I also read that that's maybe the first ski descent of the Seattle ramp. And so was it, I'm wondering what it's like to be on-siting a descent on skis, which is a generally a faster paced type of thing than on-siting something on your way up. And like, if there's a, if you think about that risk differently, while you're descending on skis and like how being on skis kind of changes your route finding and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I'd been on the Seattle ramp once before in 2015. So I kind of had some idea of what I was getting into with it. I mean, I certainly didn't know exactly what conditions were like. Um, but I figured that it, I, I knew it was likely doable for me, you know, assuming that the conditions were manageable. Um, so I don't know that I did anything different. Um, I mean, I, I took my time. I tried not to rush anything. Um, I tried to be, yeah, as smart as one can be when they're taking those risks out there. Um, and certainly on the West Rib, I was really enjoying myself. I had good visibility. It's not so heavily crevassed on that descent. And I just felt like, you know, I, it was amazing. I just opened it up as much as I could on my little skis and really enjoyed it. And then, yeah, once I was on the Seattle ramp, I definitely slowed everything down and reeled it in. And, um, it looked very different from what I had remembered it to be like in 2015. It had changed a lot. Um, it seemed, uh, pretty straightforward though, overall, other than like the intimidating feeling of not being able to see both what was above me. And it did feel a little too warm for my comfort zone. Um, but yeah, I think uh, in the end it was fine. And, you know, I had to down climb over the shrun. The shrun was massive. Like my rope wouldn't have reached over the shrun. So uh, unless I had just like tied it off as a fixed line and left it there. Um, so I had to traverse all the way out and uh, climbers right and down climb around it. And then I was able to put my skis back on. Um, that lower zone though was super messy. It was heavily crevassed and a lot of fresh ice fall. And, um, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty near my risk tolerance there. Like I wasn't really that psyched to be there, but I kind of just, you know, kept it as cool as I could and knew I had to kind of get myself through it. Um, and then once I exited off of it, yeah, it was just, it was like magical. I felt just a huge weight lifted off of me and yeah, the rest of the trip was quite relaxing and fun for me. Yeah. So I'm curious about how this factored into your season as a whole and the planning for that season. Like, did you know when you were going into the season that this was one of your main objectives or was it 
kind of spontaneous? And then if you were planning around it, what does that mean? How do you prepare for something like this? Um, so in 2016, it was my main objective. And then every year since then that I've gone to the Alaska range, it's kind of been this idea that I've been, um, at least logistically prepared for, uh, and as a second option, um, I'd been going with Ann Gilbert and, um, you know, obviously after things like climbing the Slovak, I was pretty over it. Um, I, I felt like, you know, we had had a great trip and I didn't really need to like push anything more. So, um, this year going into it, I kind of knew I, and planned, like really mentally started to prepare myself as like, that this was not necessarily the only thing I was going to the Alaska range to do. Um, but I knew it was, it was like my go time, like that I was just going to really give it, give it what I had and prepare for it to my fullest. And so, um, Ann Gilbert Chase and I had gone, had plans to go to the Alaska range for three weeks beforehand, before I started that part of my trip on Denali and try to climb a route on the North buttress of Mount Hunter. Um, so that was the beginning of our trip. Um, and that time was fully set aside for, us and our partnership and focus on, um, what we were there for together. And then I had set another four weeks aside for the second part of my trip to go up on Denali. And, um, yeah, it was, it was nice to be in the range, like first off with a good friend and, you know, just share that time with somebody that I enjoy spending time with. And, um, she helped me carry a little bit of my food and stuff up high, uh, up to the 11,000 foot camp on Denali, which was awesome. And when we had crappier weather days and then, uh, we kind of gave it our best at what we were trying to do together, but ultimately the weather was not good. So, um, after three weeks, I flew back out of the range with her, uh, kind of, you know, took a shower, regrouped, and then flew back in to the range to start the second part of my trip on Denali. Um, but yeah, like preparation for it, like obviously I've already mentioned that it's been in my mind for a long time, but I really just started to like visualize what that would look and feel like, um, over the course of the winter and through the spring. And, um, it was kind of the first, I've always been into the preparation, uh, the physical preparation for trips, um, for like in regards to training and stuff, especially Alpine stuff, just because you benefit from having really good cardio fitness. Um, I had been working with uh, this guy, Brandon Frank, who runs the Boise Youth Climbing Team. Um, I started with him like in COVID, during COVID, the original COVID start, um, and just started trying to refine like myself as a rock climber because um, personally, I just, I'd never been like that great at it. Um, I've put my focus into a lot of other things and um, certainly I've managed to do a lot and accomplish a lot with... Um, my skill set that I have, but you know, you, we can always grow as people and athletes and stuff. So I started working with him and that kind of like occupied me through the winter and kept me motivated with a home climbing wall, um, in a different way than I had seen the home climbing wall before. And then I kind of decided in January that I was like, look, if I really want to be serious about doing this, um, I, I kind of suck at consistency with cardio work. I I'm pretty active for sure, but it's easy to, for me to chill out too. So, um, I hired my friend, Brett Nichols, who is an endurance coach, um, mostly for mountain bikers down in Boise. And he, um, yeah, just kept me on the program. He hassled me a lot and, uh, 
made sure I was really getting after it up until the very last minute. So yeah, through, through the spring where the skiing really sucked here, um, I was still getting out for long eight to 10 hour days on skis and stuff. Um, so that was kind of the preparation for it. Cool. So I wanted to get into a little bit of the solo mindset and I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about just what it means to be alone in the mountains and what that feels like for you, because I think there's a different appeal for different types of people into why we go into the mountains alone sometimes. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I would say that, um, I certainly am not just, you know, like a quote unquote soloist, like where that that's like what I thrive off of the most. I mean, I think some of my most rewarding times in the mountains have been shared with, uh, partners, um, who I enjoy being around and stuff. So, the solo mindset though, like for the actual climbing, um, is something that I just, I don't know. I kind of just like enjoy that time. Um, perhaps there's a bit more presence just because there's less distractions. Um, you truly are just in your own little world. And, um, I think with the casino, I I really just wanted to feel what it would be like to be out in, you know, a pretty intimidating place on my own. And, um, and yeah, it was awesome. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I really enjoy that mindset by myself at times. And, uh, it's, it's different in the sense that like, you really have to be, for me, I really have to be in the right place. Like I, it's not just something I can enter into that mindset, like any time, um, especially for bigger objectives. Like it takes a different level of psych. And, um, in 2016, like, you know, there's so much more to go into Denali too. It's like, just to get acclimated is so much work. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there familiar with it, but it's, it's an immense amount of work. Um, the West Butchers can be a very social place or it can also feel like a really lonely place, um, at times when you're alone. And when I was there in 2016, I suppose it was just my headspace, but I felt super lonely. Um, and I didn't really enjoy that time. And I went quite light on that trip. And so going into it this year, I really wanted to set myself up for success as much as I could. And so I like took, you know, I took everything with me up to the 14,000 foot camp. Like I took awesome food and a lot of books and movies and stuff just to like keep my psych as high as I could. And then of course it turned out to be like, uh, quite social for me. And, um, I met a lot of really great people. Um, but I also, um, spent a lot of time by myself. And so, I had a lot of time to think about like what I was about to get into, but, um, this, this go around, it never felt, it never felt like wrong or what was I doing? It it kind of felt right, but it also, for whatever reason, caused a lot of emotion for me. Uh, maybe just the amount of time that I'd put into thinking about it. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's such a different experience, right? Um, being alone and, um, there's beauty and, both that and sharing it with somebody else. So I don't know if that answered your question. No, it did. Did you get to be on the summit alone? You know, I actually didn't. Um, but it was a pretty special summit for me because when you summit on Denali, um, it could be absolutely crazy, right? Like if there's like guided groups or it's just a perfect summit day, I mean, there could be 30 people over there coming off the West Buttress. Um, so you never really know what you're going to get. Fortunately, almost all the times I've climbed a more difficult route on Denali, um, we've had the summit to ourselves. but, um, this go around, I crested up off the Cassine and, 
um, onto the summit ridge and there was not a soul around except for uh, one guy, Zach Novick, who was a mountain guide, but he was up there on his own private trip. He was standing on the summit and I could see a lonesome person up there. But as I came up, I realized it was him. I didn't really know him that well. I just met him on this trip, but he was taking some photos of me and then um, gave me a hug. And I just like started crying in his arms, you know, (laughs) I think just out of like, uh, just pure excitement. And yeah, he just, you know, it's kind of, I guess, emotionally powerful. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool to f- feel something that feels like you've put a lot of thought and effort into. Yeah. And it must be cool to just have spent all day, you know, by yourself in your own head and then getting to like see another human up there to share this really special moment with must be such an interesting shift for your brain to have to make all of a sudden. Yeah, totally. Um, but it, yeah, it was cool because it was just so quiet. And he and I, I, I think I've told him uh, how meaningful it was. But yeah, he like made me a cup of tea after. And uh, yeah, it was cool for me, even though I don't really know him. And he had to deal with some chick crying in his arms <laughs> but, that he didn't know. But <laughs> Well, and I imagine, like you said, that the mountain can be a social place. You know, you're camping down below, perhaps with other people. So people know that you're up there going for this right uh yeah I would imagine I mean I think it probably like does maybe sound crazy to people just when you're alone a a lonesome chick on the mountain saying you know like carrying all your stuff and I mean I I didn't tell too many people like what I was doing up there but people who asked um what I was there for and asked more details I would tell so I don't know you know it probably, it do, I'm sure it doesn't sound weird when like a dude's like going to solo the casino, but maybe it does when a chick's soloing the casino because most people are just like, oh my God, you're a solo chick. Is that crazy for you to be up here alone, you know, <laughs> like just on the West Buttress? Yeah, it doesn't seem like the fact that this is a first female solo really played into your decision making. But now when you look back on it, does that aspect of it play into how you feel about it? You know, no, not with this climb. I mean, it certainly has like, I've never like chosen a climb specifically because I wanted to be the first female to climb it. Um, But, you know, there's always been that like, I think specifically in Yosemite with like speed climbing stuff. I mean, that was to like bring a women's speed record down or whatever, you know, so that definitely had that focus. Um, I didn't even honestly with this one, I didn't even think about, um, the female thing at all. Um, I was really excited about like the style that I was approaching it in. Um, and you know, the guys I mentioned earlier, Sam and Michael and Fabi had also, uh, climbed the casino together with skis up and over. They had approached it via the East fork and then skied off the Northwest side of the mountain. So those guys have been, um, sort of on the same program with that style in the range as well. So it's not, like I was the first person to do that. Um, you know, we were kind of the first group of people that came to the mountain to do that, um, this year, but, or that I'm aware of, but, uh, yeah, definitely not the female thing this year. It's always just interesting to me, the types of attention (laughs) that women get for their ascents compared to the way that the type of attention that, male alpinists tend to get for their ascents, but it seems to me like this has been more just focused on your climb and less on that aspect of it. And I wonder if that's how you feel too. Yeah, I, I'm, 
I mean, people are noting for sure that it's the first female ascent. And I think, you know, I mean, with all this stuff, like in any um, athletic pursuit or sport or whatever, I mean, women's women's accomplishments are always noted as as well as men's accomplishments. So, I mean, I think it makes sense to like note that. But yeah, I don't really look at the news. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess I just wanted to finish up by seeing if you have... I guess any reflections on the climb now? We get, we're getting to talk to you a couple months after you climb it, which I think is really unique because here we typically try to catch people the moment they get back from a trip. But now with a little bit more time, we tend to reflect differently on things. And you talked about it being this emotional accomplishment because of how long you've been thinking about it. And so now that it's been a couple of months since then, has anything else come up for you about what this means? Yeah, I don't know about anything specific about what it means. I mean, really over, uh, I would say, the course of the last like seven, eight years, um, I, you know, early on, like when I started having like major accomplishments, I was like riding the high train of like, oh, yeah, I accomplished that. But I, I realized that that like wasn't a healthy way to be for me. So while I do try to process like what I did, um, I try to just sort of, um, like if the thoughts come up about it, like I'll sit with them or like try to recognize like maybe like what it may, how it makes me feel or whatever. But I try not to spend too much time like focusing on, you know, like, you know, something that's now like the, a past event. I think like one thing that I have a tendency to do is to like make plans, like get excited for something big after, um, after maybe accomplishing something big. And I realized that, uh, almost inevitably, like every time I benefit from just like actually laying low for a little while, um, longer than I feel like I probably need, you know, so sometimes that can be like a couple of few months. And that doesn't mean like not doing anything, but just maybe not like doing anything that requires like an immense amount of focus, rock climbing, paragliding, whatever, just like filling my time with fun activities and laying low as well. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that we were able to catch you in this short window that you have between doing really awesome stuff. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, super fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks to Chantal Astorga and Lauren Miller for recording this chat about one of North America's greatest climbs. Chantal will be writing about this ascent for the 2022 AAJ. If you're interested in reading about it in the meantime, there's an excellent news report at alpinist.com. Chantel's climb of the Slovak Direct with Ann Gilbert Chase was featured in AAJ 2019. We'll link to that story at the AAJ website. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. The cold months are coming soon, and if you're looking for a winter-worthy tent for base camp or a high summit, check out hilleberg.com to see all the options. The Cutting Edge is supported by Loa Boots. Loa began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and now lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. We're also happy to have support from PolarTech, who's celebrating 40 years of the original fleece, outfitting climbers and adventurers alike. 
This year, Polar Tech is looking back on the partners, products, and people that helped shape the outdoor industry. From an innovation timeline made with Outside Magazine, features with legendary brands like Marmot and Melanzana, and stories about challenge grants that sent alpinists on expeditions across the globe. Take a deep dive into their rich history by going to the Peaking Since 91 page on polartech.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at polartechfabric. We also get help from Gnarly Nutrition, fueling climbs and other mountain adventures. Imagine this, after training your heart out for six long months, maintaining a strict regime, you're high on a wall on day one of a climb. But as the sun gets low, you realize you're bonking because your fueling has failed you. The solution? Gnarly Nutrition. Gnarly is the most effective, science-backed, and delicious sports nutrition made by mountain athletes just like you. Avoid bonking. Send with Gnarly. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.